0: We are going to continue a study in the second part of John chapter 5. John chapter 5 if you want to join me there. If you are traveling around different spots in the United States and trying to visit some of those unique sightseeing spots, you might pick this one. You might pick the world's largest hand-dug well that's in Greensburg, Kansas. It's one that was put in the late 1800s. The individuals, there was dozens and dozens and dozens of workmen who used a lot of hand equipment as well as other things that they could set up to dig this 100-foot well that was 30 feet in diameter. They lined the outside walls of this well with limestone so that it would stay the way that they had initially dug it. And they did this because the different railroads that were coming across the country at that time needed a spot where they could get enough steam, a water for their steam engines so they could continue on. So this spot during that time in history became a really, really integral spot in the expanding of our nation through the railroads and the other industries. And this well in time was used even for that local community and communities roundabout up until the middle 1900s as its source of water for everybody in that area. But to get that well dug, it took a lot of time. It took a lot of work. It took a lot of energy, but it proved to be really, really beneficial. Sometimes when we're studying the Word of God it takes us a lot of time. It takes us a lot of work to really dig out and to get something that is beneficial. Last session we started talking about John chapter 5. We did a little bit of digging. Our digging started in the Old Testament. Psalm 2 in particular. And maybe if you weren't with us, you want to just read through that chapter of Psalm, even right now as we continue in this first part of this study of John 5. Because in the Old Testament we pointed out in Psalms, Isaiah, and other passages that there was the prediction that God's Son would come to this earth as a human being. He would be called Messiah. And there was multiple different references to that, that character. Well, in John chapter 5, Jesus is going to lay claim that he is that individual. Even though the Jews didn't recognize him, which they should have done, Jesus lays out a case very clearly in this text that he is God in the flesh, God's chosen Messiah. Let me remind you, here's how we're dividing the text in our study. We talked first of all about the miracle. How he healed a man in verses 1 through the beginning down to about verse 9. A man who had been impotent for 38 years could not walk. He heals this man of that disease. And that man instantaneously gets up. This man walks about, and he goes into the temple praising God. The rulers and the leaders, they get upset. Not that the man was healed, but he was healed on the Sabbath day. That brings us to the motives why Jesus did that, that event, and why he did that particular that particular day did the healing. And then when we're all done, we're going to talk about the message. But let's pick up where we left off last time. We talked about the, the motives, and we said that Jesus did that miracle to show pity, mercy to the one who is in desperate need just like he shows pity to us. He did it to expedite his plan that involved everyone. And we made observation at the end of our last study that Jesus did this miracle at that moment, at that place, next door to the temple, on a Sabbath day, so as to engage, create an opportunity to engage the Jewish leaders who was predicted would turn against the Messiah, reject him, and ask for him to be slain. So Jesus is going to do that miracle to stir up in a in a good towards a good event stir up the jewish leadership and it worked as we read in the text that it says therefore verse 16 did the jews seek to persecute jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the sabbath day And so Jesus very clearly is working. But then he goes on and he explains, we'll give his third motive here, explains his person to the Jewish leaders. Jesus makes further comments. And he goes on, and those further comments even enraged the leaders even more. We said verse 16, they are thinking of slaying him. Now look at verse 18. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So what Jesus is doing is going to make claims to not only uh, that he's Messiah, but that he is God in the flesh. And these, this is going to be just absolutely you know, exasperating to the Jewish leaders. I want you to notice something where it says in verse 17, where Jesus in between those two verses makes comment and lays claim to being God, it said, but Jesus answered them. If you look at the previous verse, the Jewish leaders didn't say anything to him. He's not, there's no reference that we know of, of words being spoken. And what's interesting is the word that is chosen for answered them in this particular passage is a legal term, not used frequently, but in this case it is. It's a legal term. It gives the idea of giving a legal argument presenting your case. And that's exactly what Jesus does in this rest of the discussion that continues throughout the remainder of John chapter 5. His discussion starts with verse 17 and then it picks up again verse 19 and goes all the way to the end of the chapter. And so let's just do a summary, not verse by verse, but basically the basic ideas. What does Jesus present? What legal evidences is is he giving or legal claim or legal argument is he giving in this text? (coughs) I want you to observe that while they are in the temple, which is critical to his conversation, Jesus is talking to Jewish leaders. There are other people round about. There is also that man that has been healed that is here in the the same vicinity. And Jesus in the midst of this feast day, this Sabbath of the feast day, when there's greater crowds there, he is going to make claims in the temple in the house of God, in the place that the Jews consider to be the residence of God. Here's what he's going to say. He's going to say that God, the Father, and I, we are equal in productivity. What I mean by that is this, okay? He says, my Father, verse 17, is always working up to this very time, and I am working too. Now think this through. Their claim is that, that Jesus Christ is this radical preacher, this radical teacher. But Jesus is going to make, make lame claim right in this phrase, and he does it multiple times in this text, my father. Well, we've already talked about that. That is a very unique statement made by anybody at that time period to address God as father and to make it very personal. And so Jesus is claiming a unique relationship that upsets them. But he goes on and he makes the idea that God did not stop working on the Sabbath. Now again, understand the setting. They're upset that this man is walking on the Sabbath. And the reason he's carrying his bed is he was told to carry his bed. We already talked about that and read that in the previous verses in last study. And so they're upset all about the Sabbath being broken. Well, Jesus responds and says, you know, in reality, God works on the Sabbath day. Yes, he rested at the end of creation, but God is still at work on, on Sabbath day. God is still maintaining the world, the creation. God is still moving in hearts. God is doing God work on the Sabbath day. And he's making a just a, trueth, a true statement. God still works on the Sabbath day. In fact, God uh, has always worked on the Sabbath day. Not in the sense that, that uh, you men are, are considering where God just doesn't do anything. He does a lot of things on the Sabbath day. That he is busy in, in maintaining and managing, moving in the hearts. And Jesus says he works on the Sabbath day. And he even gives orders for others to work on the Sabbath day. You priest you teachers. You have been given orders to do business and sacrifice and things on the Sabbath day. And Jesus says the Father has worked, he's engaged others in working, and I am working too. Why is that? Because we are working in helpful harmony. We in our productivity, we work hand in hand. And so he basically he is reminding them that God can do what God wants on the Sabbath day because he's the Lord of the Sabbath. This will be an argument that he'll even make, make even clearer in the Gospel of Matthew in about a year from now. So Jesus is laying claim to the idea that I can work on the Sabbath day because the Father works because we are both Lord of the Sabbath. We are individuals who can even give orders on the Sabbath day to other individuals, like the priest from God or the man carrying his bed from Jesus. And so Jesus is making it clear, and they understood what he was saying, that he and the Father, that they were individuals that were having a common productivity with them, but also a common partnership between them. In this partnership, he's already said that we work together. He says that what the Father does, I do. But notice how he expands it in verse 19. In verse 19, he says, "...truly, truly, don't be surprised. This isn't an exaggeration. I am saying to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. But what he sees the Father do, for whatsoever things he does, these also doeth the Son likewise." We, we work in our productivity. We are in total harmony. We are in this partnership of doing everything hand in hand, that we work out work uh, activities and events without any conflict. I even do exactly what the Father has done because we are the same. We have the same abilities. Now, that would really upset the Jews that he is, he, he is claiming the equality with the Father in this partnership. In fact, he'll say it again down in verse 30 where he says, Because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father that hath sent me. They have an equal productivity. They are equal in this partnership. But he'll go on, he says, we are equal in power. That's already been alluded to. The fact that I can do the same work that God the Father can do. Then he goes on and makes other statements. And if we jump down, we'll say in verse 21. For as the Father raises up the dead and restores them, quickens, brings back to life, even so the Son... Restores whom he will. Amazing. Verse 25, he says, Verily, verily, truly, truly, do not be surprised by this. I say unto you, he that hears my word and believes on him, I'm sorry, I wanted verse 25. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that shall hear They that hear shall live. So he's making it very clear. Now, you as a Jew of the Old Testament, you know that it's the Lord God, Jehovah, L-O-R-D in capital letters. He is the one that has the power. But Jesus here is saying, wait a minute, I have the power to raise the dead too. I am equal in power to capital L-O-R-D, to Jehovah. Truly, truly, this is not, a, this is not something that's misleading. I have that power. In fact, I have power, just like the Father, to give life. Verse 26. He says, for as the father has life in himself, so has he given to the son to have life in himself. Equal abilities, equal powers, equal, equal partnership and productivity and power, equal in position. That, what I mean by that is not only their abilities, but also their authorities equal in position, He makes it clear that, uh, and everybody would know this, that God is the one who is going to judge. If you read in your Old Testament, you would know from Genesis, you would know from other prophets, that God is the one who's going to judge people. Well, we come to this text and Jesus says, well, in reality, the Father who is the judge, the Father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment under the Son. He's talking about that future judgment. And he says that the Father, who is the judge of all, is saying that I, as his son, am going to be the one who actually carries it out. And so he says that that is no surprise. Why? Because, verse 27, he hath given him, the Father, hath given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. So his claim here is, God has given me the authority to be your judge all you in this in this temple one day you're going to stand before and answer me because i have that position i have that authority and the reason i have it is because i am as he says in this text the Son of Man. Now to understand that and understand what he is saying, you and I need to do a little bit of background study. Take your Bibles and flip back to Daniel. The book of Daniel where this would be a familiar story to the Jews. They would understand their prophecies. They would understand the book of Daniel. And Jesus is laying claim to a passage in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7 and we jump down in the middle of this story talking about the future and the kingdoms and the kingdom of God coming. To the earth, we'll we'll pick up and let's start in verse nine of Daniel seven. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, all those human kingdoms. And the ancient of days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, the hair of his head was like pure wool, his throne like the fiery flame, and his will wheel, wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand, thousands thousands ministered unto him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the judgment was set and the books were opened. I'm going to jump down to verse 13. And I saw in the visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days. We know that that's God. And they brought him near before him. And there was given unto the Son of Man... Him, dominion and glory and the kingdom that all people, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. So Jesus is using a phrase, a term, a title from the Old Testament, from the book of Daniel, of that one, that Son of Man, who is given authority by the Ancient of Days. And Jesus is saying, Because I am that one. I am given the authority to judge all men. And so we go back and we say, okay, the Jews, how would they respond to that? Well, Jesus makes comment to them after he's made the claims, marvel not at this. Don't be surprised, don't reject this. You know, this is this is a true statement. And then he explains how this judgment is going to take place. And he talks about it. he says, The hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, shall come forth, they that have done good unto resurrection of life, they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. I can of my own self do nothing, as I hear I will judge. And my judgment will be or is just. And so Jesus makes it very clear that he is going to be the judge and that it's going to be just and it's all because it says in verse 30 because I seek not my own will but the will of the Father that hath sent me. And so we get this whole information about this judgment. By the way, let's pause and let's point out about the judgment that we just read in John chapter 5. That future judgment day, all men will be resurrected. Not just some, but all people are going to be resurrected one day when we talk about judgment. And he's not going to, later on he'll, he'll clarify that there's phases of it, but right now he's taking it as one big mass of judgment and he says all men are going to be judged and they're going to be resurrected for that time. There's a grave that's up in uh, Hanover, Massachusetts and it's in one of those old graveyards next to a church that has been closed. But you can still walk in and you can see these ancient, we would call them ancient, these historical headstones and grave markers, there's one that's really interesting. When it was built, it was built of all these different layers of stone and the, the body put inside and it was even, the top of it was even bolted with a metal clasp and then, and then a uh, padlock put on it. And written on that, that, uh, that whole edifice was all different things about family, but there was one statement that was made by the individual who was buried there. And it said, this sepulcher, purchased for all eternity, is not permitted to be opened. The individual who did that had laid claim that there would be no resurrection. He would bypass it, and he would just as soon stay in this grave. You know what's interesting? Years went by and some seed of some type of a tree got in between the stones and out from that area grew this tree that that eventually forced and you can see it in the picture forced some of the stones apart. This man thought that he was going to be secured in there with his body and not have to face God. That's not true. God can even use something as simple as a tree to open up his grave. All men, including you and me, will one day be resurrected. And those of you who are listening and do not know who Christ is, he is the one that according to the text we're reading, he's the individual who will resurrect you. He's the one that will bring your body back to life, reunite it with the Spirit. He is the one that is going to then judge you, and you're going to stand before, and you're going to have to give account, and you're going to have to answer, and you're going to have to face Jesus face to face in the flesh one day. And the result, as we already read, is going to be unto life, as he mentioned in verse 29, or unto damnation. There's only one or the other. There isn't a third spot, a purgatory, or a fourth, a limbo. There isn't some other spot that people can choose. It's either you're going to go to heaven or you're going to go to hell. And Jesus has made that very clear. There are no other options. You know, when the uh, Titanic sank, they had this board listed of all the passengers and what information they were able to get, and they were posting and what they knew at the time in London of those who had left that region to head over to the United States, and they were posting on the boards the people who had survived or the people that they knew were lost so that families could figure out where they were. And what they did on that big board that was outside the office of the ocean lining company is they had a column that just said, saved, or it said lost. Isn't that, isn't that depictive of what the future will be? In the, in the book of life, there's going to be basically saved or lost. Your name's in it or not. And Jesus is making claim that you're going to answer to him. He's going to resurrect you. You are going to be judged one day. And the question is, what are you going to do? How are you going to stand? What is going to be the verdict? What is going to be the conclusion? From Jesus Christ, when he looks at your life, when he judges you personally, as you stand there all by yourself before him, is he going to say saved or lost? That, that's why this claim of Jesus, that he has the position, the authority, was so important that he declared it before everybody. He said, I have the power, I have the position, I'm in a partnership with the Father, that we produce things together. His point is, I am God and I'm giving you the opportunity to take care of things now in this life because one day you're going to be answering to me. And then he makes a statement in this text that is so wonderful. He talks about, for those who are concerned about their eternal judgment, he talks about, I and the Father are equal in pardoning, in pardoning, in forgiving people, in absolving people, if you would, of their sins so that they can enter into heaven. Watch what he does. In verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, this is no exaggeration, this is a fact. As sure as I am standing before you and I have created the worlds, truly, truly, I say unto him, he that hears my words, very clear, he that hears my word and believes on him that sent me. Jesus is is implying several thoughts. Real quick, he is implying, wait a minute, there is a pardon that is available to anyone. He, any of you. Any of you who are here, priest, poverty stricken person, any one of you who is here, young person, adult, single, married, he that hears my word, he makes it clear that this pardon that he is offering demands personal belief. You. You yourself, not not your parents, not your your family, not your church, not your community. You have to personally believe. What do you have to believe in? You have to believe in both the Father and the Son equally. You have to believe that the Father is in heaven and has sent his Son to die to give his life as a sacrifice for your sin. That together they worked out this plan to provide the payment for your sins. Then that together... With the power of God upon him, Jesus resurrected and received from the the, the approval of the Father for everything that he had done, the acceptance of his sacrifice for you to have this forgiveness, this pardon for all eternity. And so he makes it clear that if you do that, if you repent of your sins and call upon him to be Savior, if you accept him as your one and, own par- one and only partner or forgiver, then he says, I will give to you everlasting life. He that believes on him that sent me has everlasting life. It can be a present possession right now. Friend, you don't have to sit back and say, well, I hope one day I'll be in heaven. He is saying you can know in this lifetime. You need to know in this lifetime because it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. There is no time to all of a sudden rethink this. You have to deal with it in this life. And if you accept Christ, you get the present possession of everlasting life and you shall not come into condemnation. Very clearly his idea that you will have this everlasting pardon that is certain that will last forever and ever and ever. Oh, this is a wonderful gift. This is a wonderful message that Jesus is preaching to the Jews in the temple who are there for religious activity, trying to seek forgiveness doing what they can in order to get a pardon. And Jesus is saying it's available. Any of you who want it, you need to believe that I am sent by the Father, that I am the one predicted in the Old Testament as being the, the giver of life, the one who is able to forgive you, the one who is sacrificing himself so that you don't have to die and go to hell. You can have total, complete gift of eternal life. Jesus is making it clear in the very place where God is said to reside. What a wonderful message that he makes. Then he makes this other claim. He says, God, the Father, and I, we're we're equal in praise that should come to us, in deserving the praise. Watch what he says. Okay, He makes this comment in verse 23. He says that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honors not the Son honors not the Father which, which has sent him. You know, this is quite a claim. This, think of the people he's talking to, the setting that he is saying this. These Jewish people very clearly said that the Lord our God is One. They very clearly said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And they were very, very jealous of those commands. They, want, they, they revolted when the Romans, even next door to the temple, put up on their barricades that, could, that were higher than the temple wall. They even put flags and they put some type of symbols of different deities. That upset them so much because that would even get them to think of a different deity and there is to be nobody. But we only worship the Lord our God. And all of a sudden Jesus comes in and says, I deserve equal worship with the Lord God. He is making it very clear. For those who would question, did Jesus ever say he was God? This is it. This amongst the many other statements, I deserve the same praise and honor as God the Father because we are equal. His statement was just absolutely clear. And then he goes and he says to those individuals standing here, the leaders of the religious activity, the leaders who would preach the commandments, he is saying, if you don't honor me, you are not honoring the Father. Whoa, what a a challenging statement to them, to the Jews in the temple, that you better deal with me now in this life because you're going to deal with me in the next life as well and so Jesus's claims are so clear in this text that all of a sudden it is it is without a doubt if they were upset that Jesus Yeah, had already done a job and a work on the Sabbath day and had alluded with just one statement in verse 17 that he and the Father were close and declared himself that he was equal with God. Well, the rest of the chapter, he just put the emphatic stamp and exclamation point after exclamation point, I and the Father are equal. We are one. Now, he makes these statements. And then, and again, I remind you, he did it in a legal sense. And then he makes the comment that is really interesting. Verse 31, in a legal sense. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now, does that mean Jesus is lying? Oh, absolutely not. But he is in a legal uh, frame of mind. And he is doing what what the Old Testament had already alluded to. That you can make all the claims. You can make all the statements. But things are established when there's two or three witnesses. When others are able to confirm or to attest that what is being stated is true. So from a legal point of view, he isn't decrying himself. He isn't denying himself. He isn't isn't discrediting himself. He's just talking and saying, hey listen, from a legal point, you may not believe me, but let me give you in this conversation where I've given you my legal brief, my legal argument, let me give you legal confirmation or witnesses. And what he does is he starts offering several witnesses to attest, to bear witness that, hey, what I am saying is absolutely true. The first one he mentions as we read on, there is another that bears witness of me. I know that that witness which he witnesses is true. You sent unto John and he bare witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say that he, you might be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp. King James says light, it's lamp, literally. And you were willing for a season to rejoice in this one's witness, in what he was proclaiming. Now to get the full impact, remember this. Remember that the Jews, they highly respected John. The Jews, the leadership as well, they considered him a a prophet. There wasn't a question that he was this ungodly individual. And he was one who was bearing witness, who was holding up the light of, of Jesus Christ. He made it very clear okay, that Jesus was the Messiah. You got your your finger here, back up a few chapters. Let's just back up and let's remind ourselves what John the Baptist said, starting in chapter 1, in verse 29. The next day, John sees Jesus coming unto him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man which is to be preferred before me. For he was before me. I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John also, as the passage goes on, bear record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. I saw and bear record, this is the Son of God. He talks about a little bit further in chapter 3, where John later on, makes a few comments. In John chapter 3, jump down to verse 28. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Messiah, but that I am sent before him. He that has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, I must decrease. John, a popular accepted witness amongst the Jewish people and the people at the temple. Then Jesus gives another witness, another evidence. He says, verse 36, but I have greater witness than that of John for the works which the Father hath given me to finish the same works that I do, they bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. You know what? People can make claims all they want. I, mean, I might be able to make this claim. That I am an outstanding, phenomenal basketball player that can dunk a basketball. The staff is laughing already. Uh, You would say, I have to prove it. Can I even get off the ground? Show us by our works. Jesus right now all of a sudden makes this claim. He says that I am God and I'm doing the works of God. And people say, okay, well prove it. Oh. see this man standing here, this man that I just healed after 38 years in your temple district. He was there. Never did anybody assist him and help him to be able to be recovered through surgery or anything else. I did it with a word. My word is powerful. His words, do you remember the story just preceding all this, that Jesus healed the nobleman's son at a distance? That Jesus healed him of a deadly disease. Do you remember in chapter 2, the very first miracle? The miracle of the wedding of Cana, where he changed the water into wine. The miracle that caused Nicodemus to come to Jesus that night in John 3 and say, Master, no man can do the things which you do, except God be with him. They, they, They understood. They were getting the concept even Nicodemus and some of those in the Jewish audience, they were understanding that he is doing phenomenal things. His works bear witness. Then he goes on and he says, God the Father. God the Father bears witness. And he makes that comment where he says, And the Father himself which has sent me has borne witness of me. You neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his works, but that you have not heard his word abiding in you for whom he hath sent. Him you believe not. But he says, hey, wait a minute. God gave a witness and you didn't accept it. Now he's referring probably to the time a voice from heaven when he was baptized that said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That, that's the one time that's been already occurred by the time Jesus is preaching. There's the other time where God spoke out and he says at the transfigure, this is my beloved son. There will be a third time when in the temple Jesus is preaching and all of a sudden there's this thunders that some say it's thunder and others will say, no, no, it was an angel that spoke to him. And Jesus, as just in that setting, will pray and God will answer him. And others will say it's a divine voice from heaven. An angel, somebody speaking to him. The father bore witness. We have as well another witness. We have a witness that he says it's the scriptures. Look at what he says. Verse 39. And by the way, the verbiage of verse 39 can either be an imperative or just a statement. I think in the setting, the statement makes perfect sense. You search the scriptures over and over again. For in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. And yet you will not come to me that you might have life. I receive not honor from the men, the honor that, that is due me. But I know you that you have not the love of God in you. And that's why you reject God's witness. That's why you reject me. You don't love God the way you say you do. In other words, you're searching the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. You are absolutely dead wrong you don't get eternal life the way you think and the way you interpret and you apply it those scriptures all talk about me they clearly present me that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Remember, we already mentioned this at the beginning of this entire study. There are multiple different passages that, and illustrations and types that point to Jesus Christ. There are multiple statements. And so we looked at several at the beginning of this study where it's saying that the Son of Man will come where God's Son will come, where a babe will be born. He will be the, the Almighty God, the Everlasting Father. Claims that were made... Jesus, throughout the Old Testament, you can find hundreds of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Search the scriptures. They speak of Jesus. They tell about him being the one from the Father. And then he goes on. He makes this comment. He says, you search the scriptures, but, but, you who are studying the Bible, you will not come to me. You won't come to me that you might have that eternal life. You don't honor me the way you're supposed to honor me. You you don't love God. In, in real essence, you, you stand here in this temple and you do all this ritual, but you really don't love God. Because if you love the Father, you would love me. You don't even receive me. I come in my Father's name and you receive me not. But he says, if somebody else comes and makes themselves to say, I'm the Messiah, and some of these political revolts that were taking place this century and in the uh, years around Jesus Christ is, oh, yeah, some of you will follow them. You'll follow a political Messiah, but you won't even follow the one predicted in Scripture. And so he's very clearly saying, listen, folk, you've got to deal with me. And right now, I am not happy with what's going on. He gives a final witness. The final witness is mentioned in verse 46. And remember now, if we're talking Moses, the Jews revered this person. He was the father of their nation next to Abraham. He's the one that authored the law. He's the one that did It was called the greatest of the prophets And Jesus says, he says, uh, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. For there is one that accuses you, it's Moses, in whom you put a lot of confidence in. For had you believed Moses, you would have believed in me. For he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how will you believe in my words? Jesus is very clear. He's saying, Moses spoke of me. He's my witness. He's laid it all out. He's given his claim, he's given his, his proofs, and he very clearly he's explained his person to the Jews to encourage them, to encourage them to prefer him, to pick him, to be, to be to saying to him, you are the Messiah. And as such he says, I want, you, I want you to honor me and receive me and to hear me and to believe me. That leads us to our last point of the message. The last point, his message. What is it? What is the point of the message that he gave to the Jews that John recorded for us to hear? That John at the end of the book says these things were written that you might believe? The message is real simple. The message is believe and follow me. Believe and follow me. I'm going to take you back as we wrap this up to where we started. We started in the book of Psalms, chapter 2. The passage talks all about how God is going to send his son. It talks about God establishing His Son upon the throne. It, ra- it talks about how people, the kings, that they will reject the Lord God from authority over their lives and He will have them in derision. He will destroy them when He sets up His Son. Then we come to the very end of the entire chapter of that Psalm 2, a psalm that's quoted in the New Testament as proof that Jesus is the one that God has sent. And we read, Serve the Lord, Jehovah, that is, with fear and trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish from the way. Blessed are all they that put their trust in the Son. Very clearly, He is telling us that the way to avoid damnation and destruction from God the Father, from the heavenly Trinity, is by believing in the sun, accepting the sun to kiss the sun is the idea of in ancient days of one who is coming before that individual, and what you 're doing is you're showing that you accept their leadership over your life you're accepting him as a friend and as an ally you 're saying that this one can be the Lord, the master, and as I kiss the sun, that is his ring, his hand. I'm accepting his authority in my life. I am accepting him as the one to that with whom I want to be associated. I am saying to that one that his commands will be the commands that I will operate by. As my master, savior, Lord. I am declaring allegiance to him. In front of a crowd and coming into that king's courtroom and kissing his hand. I'm your ally. I'm with you. I'm for you. And I will obey you. And I will follow your authority. And I want everyone to know that I am giving my allegiance to you. I have an affection for you. I'm an individual that I will make it my goal and my desire to please you. So as you think about kissing the sun, the reasons are manifold that you should. That you should, you should bow before this Jesus. He's your judge. He's got all power. He's the authority. He's the one that, that is equal with the Father. He is the one that has life in his possession. That means death as well. He is the one that Scripture spoke about. You should with eagerness dedicate yourself to following the Son. Story, Timothy Stackpole felt that his mission in life was to be a firefighter. And so he made that his career in New York City. He was injured in in his firefighting in 1998. Injured to the point that after months of recovery, he could stay now totally retired and be taken care of because the injury was severe. But he really felt burden to this call that he was to be a firefighter to help serve individuals. He went back into the the force served and he was one of those that in 9-11 gave his life as the towers fell upon those who were rescuing. He had a fervency. He had a dedication. He had a purpose that would not put him on the sidelines. Jesus is saying to the crowd of people there in the temple and to the crowd of us here on this site this morning, have a fervency, have a dedication to kiss the sun, to submit to Jesus Christ. Call upon him as your savior if you have never done that. He is God offering you the gift of eternal life. That way when you stand before him, you can say, I called, you promised in this passage to give me everlasting life. You who have been born again, kiss the son. Come to him with dedication, determination and allegiance. Come to him with fervency and yieldedness kiss the Son who is God in the flesh. Father, help us to live this motto this week, to live by kissing you, honoring you, yielding to you, giving our allegiance to you, declaring you, showing our loyalty. Thank you for this deep text, but for the simplicity of your message, for declaring yourself to our lives this day. Thank you in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.